anyone listening, you are more like your fellow firefighter than, than you are unique in terms of your mental health, in terms of what you're struggling with. Sub, whether it's substance abuse, suicidal ideations, anxiety, stress, depression, you are not alone. You are surrounded by firefighters who are facing the same challenges that you are and help is available from anyone around you. So don't ever feel like you're on an island or that you're isolated. Folks, welcome to Counselors Can Help. Let's demystify the process of counseling. We want to remove barriers, answer your questions, educate, entertain, and inspire you to action. All right, well, folks, welcome back to Counselors Can Help. We are one of those special shows that I think is important and what I call the professional series in my uh, series of shows, and that is to discuss certain professions and their unique challenges and things that they face in the mental health world. And today, we're working with Andrew Wilcox of the Salt Lake City Fire Department. Mm -hmm. We're here to discuss uh, specifically the challenges relating to firefighters and in some ways, first responders. Welcome, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's actually awesome to be here, getting in touch with through our peer support with yourself and with the show. It's a message that needs to go out and needs to reach the broader spectrum of firefighters and EMS and and you know police, fire, dispatch. It's all needed for sure. Yeah. I come at it as a pilot, and I've done a show with the pilots on here. I feel like there's a a group of people that have their own specific, unique takes on this subject. But really, it's not that different. I mean, when you get down to it, there's a whole bunch of uh, folks that have a similar version of this story. And one version is, I can't get help with that. I can't be seen with that. I can't be, I can't have that thing taint my reputation. Mm -hmm. I can't discuss that. I I have to hide it. I have to, I have to wonder if this is going to tarnish my brand, my career, Mm-hmm. Um, yada yada. You've heard it all, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we spoke of a little bit leading up to this that there's still a lot of challenges and a lot of walls that we're trying to tear down that that exist that have existed for generations. But you know, the future looks bright. It's getting it's getting better. The message is being received a lot more, and firefighters in general, I I feel are are doing a lot better. Okay, taking care of themselves. So yeah, that's good. Give the folks just a sense of what you do. What's what's a day in the life. Yeah, um, you know, a little bit about me and and my role in all of this. I've been with Salt Lake City Fire Department for about 10 and a half years now. Been in EMS for about 13 total. Uh, I started as a volunteer on an ambulance. And mental health has always been been an interest to me. Before I even got in the fire service, psychology, mental health, depression, things like that, suicide prevention has always just been something that a I've been drawn to. I've been a part of our peer support team now for about six years, five, six years. Recently got my master's degree in public service with an emphasis on mental health in fire and EMS. So it's, it's given me more tools and how to approach this conversation, but also more of an understanding of, of what draws people to either not getting therapy and not getting the help they need, um, but also what draws them to getting therapy so we can perpetuate kind of that message as well. Yeah. So you're out there doing it, right? You've been doing it. You've seen everything done, whatever. You've seen all the experiences. You, you're in it. You're at the fire station routinely. This is not something you're you're looking at from the distance, right? You're you're in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. I I worked downtown for. Uh, I recently took a, a support position, so I worked downtown on the east side of the downtown for 
my entire career, essentially, um, you know, 10 years at a station one. And it's a very busy station. It's it's one of the busiest uh, single company stations in the state. We run, I think the average is close to 12 calls every 24 hours. We do 48 hour shifts, you know, and, and we're able to help lots of unique populations, you know, from from the transient population in Salt Lake City to more affluent neighborhoods up in the avenues and, and, and everything in between. And so we we do we see a lot we've seen everything i've seen everything i feel like more than i more than i care to admit that i've seen as well and and it definitely it definitely has has changed me for good good better and you know everything everything in the middle it's definitely altered my sure. perspectives on life in general so what i wrote down as the goals for the show is uh three of them i have what issues do firefighters deal with mentally what's missing or lacking in the progress and then the last thing is, where is the profession going? There's probably changes going on, and we'll speak to those here on the show, but to educate folks where we see mental health firefighting profession trying to make changes such that these issues that we're talking about someday are not a thing, which gets to my next point of what do you battle? I mean, what do you see as far as mental health? What kinds of things? What's yeah. the kind of common refrain you hear from fellow firefighters about this subject? It's 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 hard to put a specific type of call or a specific type of emergency that that you know impacts a firefighter because it is so individual, right? A lot of the studies that have been done on PTSD, uh, for as an example, is from the military, and from the military we get some of the treatments, some of the modalities, some of the understanding, but we're realizing that that in fire and EMS we're actually at a, a higher prevalence of PTSD because. For us, and it's not to discredit the military by any means. For us, it's it's not a a short um, you know tour of duty. Mm-hmm. It's an extended career, and not only that, but we're we're living in the neighborhoods that we respond to. We're visiting when we come downtown for the weekend, you know, with our family, and and we're constantly reliving and being reminded of these tragedies and these emergencies and these things that we're a part of. So that stress response, um, you know, physiologically is is constantly being triggered. For myself, I noticed this, you know, years on the after I came out of the job, probably six, seven years, that I would hear sounds on TV or my kids would be watching a show or playing on the iPad and and a bell would sound that was the similar tone as our gongs going off at the station. And all of a sudden my heart rate would would go up and, and I could feel that fight or flight response kicking in, just like I do when I'm at work at the fire station. And it's that response that is constantly triggered, the cortisol being released, that affects over time. So, if, you know, for me and in my experience, it's not necessarily one thing, but it's it's a, a culmination of events that right. lead up to these challenges. And that's the issue that we're having with firefighters is, is they're, they're struggling with the fact that something bothers them that two, three, four plus years ago had no effect on them and they could keep in doing their job. And now all of a sudden it, it affects them. And so they almost like they feel broken because in the past they could deal with this right. and all of a sudden now they can't. And so they're, they're feeling like they're broken or something's wrong with them because of it. So as you were talking, I was thinking about that. Like, as you mentioned, you're, you're constantly driving by or seeing or hearing the thing that you did a week ago or two years ago or whatever it is. And that what used to be not a big deal for many firefighters probably initially, all of a sudden becomes a big deal and they don't know how to get back to the old them. It's right. exactly right. I mean, I, I remember we lived downtown when I first got married and hired on with, with the city. And 
And, you know, I'd be driving around with my wife and I'd say, oh, we had a fire there or we had a, you know, this emergency there. We had a traffic accident here. And it was exciting. There was that, you know, excitement to being a new firefighter and, and kind of living that dream. And as years went on, I realized I stopped sharing that with my spouse in the car. I stopped wanting to share that information. I was still recognizing it, but now I was having a negative trigger uh, as I as I drove past that you know location or house or whatever, and it makes you bitter. It starts to turn your personality to a, a more sour type of individual, and it's you know it, it varies in degrees with with the individual, obviously. But a lot of firefighters they they turn to methods and modalities to try and treat it and self medicate that are harmful that that continue to perpetuate the problem. Yeah, so that gets into. I guess so what we've discovered so far or talked about so far is the idea of where the trauma starts, right? And, and the fact that not there, there's not just a trauma, but that you have to relive it in many ways or bump into it accidentally or get recalled to a place that's like this thing was before. But now the question becomes, what do I do with that? You're noticing or seeing that this is really starting to impact me mm -hmm. somehow, either in the not wanting to come to work anymore or being really hesitant to go to certain types of uh, scenes, I guess. Mm -hmm. Who do I tell? What do I do with that? Am I going to ruin my personal reputation? I mean, people probably sit in oh, yeah. that zone for quite a while. Quite a while. Um, you're absolutely, you know, hit the nail on the head with that because... Talking about it, inventing and having that kitchen table conversation is one thing, but actually opening up and saying, this is how it's affecting me. This is this is how it's changing how I perceive my world. This is how it's affecting my relationships at home. And that's one of the biggest changes that we're seeing in terms of how we, we handle these. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't like the word issues necessarily, but these changes in ourselves is it used to be, you know what, just leave work at work, go home. And deal with it and then come back and, and be refreshed. And there is a, a point to that. You want to go home. You want to get your rest and, and whatnot. But unless you're taking care of the trauma at work with people who understand where it's coming from, as difficult as that may be to open up, you're taking it home to people who don't understand. As much as they want to empathize and as much as they love you and they care about you, they weren't there. They weren't a part of it. And there's always that disconnect that what we're seeing is that disconnect and that wedge becomes worse and worse and worse over time. And essentially now you have two areas of your life that aren't being helped, mm. that are being ne negatively impacted. And so we're doing more to encourage our firefighters to handle this trauma while they're at the station, handle it while they're at a crew. And, and we're seeing some amazing results because of it, absolutely amazing results because of it. And that's just one of the many things that we're trying to, to adjust going forward so that, you know, these firefighters have healthy lives both at work and off the job. I think a common theme as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about trauma or, or people that I deal with that have like panic disorders or, you know, what have you. There is a belief or an idea that says, this will go away. Mm -hmm. This thing that I have will, I'll get over it yeah. at some point. But yet if you're not doing anything actively to make it go away, it doesn't go away. It grows. It, it stays with you and becomes, uh, like you said, it, it has a potential to grow and get worse. And that's probably a very likely outcome. Mm -hmm. And so in the past, you've had people who were like, well, I'm, I'm going to somehow, I'll take a break from work or whatever. I'll go home. I'll stop thinking about it. And then it'll, it'll dissipate, right? It'll, I'll come back to work. I'll have forgotten all about it. That mentality 
is sort of a dead end road, right? You're, you're never going to address the thing. It's still a secret or you're not sure how to address it. Nobody is addressing it. And so you're really just being re-traumatized or, or now shamed or scared that this thing is going to come up mm-hmm. at the next call. Mm-hmm. And now you don't know what to do with it. And, and not only that, the, the self-destructive behaviors, even if you're aware of them, become so difficult to break those habit cycles. Medications, alcohol, sedentary lifestyle, you know, not enjoying the things. You know, most firefighters are active individuals. That's what draws them to this profession. And, and we see firefighters um, in case studies where firefighters no longer want to recreate the way they used to, no longer want to participate in those things. And that goes across the board with just human nature. But with firefighters especially, it, it becomes very negative very quickly. And for me, and in, in my studies, and my trying to, to better understand and be a better you know uh, advocate for mental health, is reframing that question of what's wrong with me to what happened to me. There's a big difference when we look at ourselves and say, you know what, I'm not broken. I lived through traumatic experience. I lived through 10 years of traumatic experiences of pediatric emergencies and mortality and and destruction and mayhem, and it's taken its toll. So it's not that I'm a broken person. It's that I had stuff happen to me. And it almost creates that separation for these individuals to look at and say, you know what? Okay. Yeah, this did happen to me. Let's address just this fact. And the fact is I was involved in something that was traumatic. So let's talk about it. It's not, it's not trying to fix some emotional baggage that you're worried that you're carrying, but actually dealing with the event that took place yeah. that had that impact on you. So it gets to, I guess, what's missing or lacking in the old process was this idea that it's somehow going to go away or if I brought it up or addressed it, it would permanently mark me or shame me or make mm-hmm. me make me not qualified to do the job. Right? Exactly. Like, it, it, and, e- and even if, you know, not professionally, but just personally among your peers. Right. You know, I, I can never be an officer if people think I'm struggling with anxiety or depression. I could never lead a crew or be effective as a paramedic, yeah. as an EMT, if I'm dealing with mental health challenges. They'll look at me differently. I won't be a natural leader or be a functioning leader yeah. of the station if mm-hmm. I'm seen as defective. Or yeah, there's a there's a type A machoism personality that, that is inherent with this job and is part of the culture. It's been a part of the culture since the beginning of firefighting. But at the same time, we have to understand that it you're not sacrificing that toughness, that machoism that, that's positive by addressing the fact that, you know what, my, my mind is a part of my body and it needs care just like anything else does. And so changing that mindset, like you said, is somehow making that adaptive or the idea that, hey, you know, if I'm going to be in this profession for a long time, I'm going to see some things that probably be upsetting and, and maybe get me really Tear, take me down for a little bit. That that is to be expected. In the airline business, as you get older, people are worried that all of these kinds of things pop up and that their supervisor will, will somehow look down on them that they couldn't handle it or whatever. And, and the good supervisors, I think, realize that there's no way you're going to get through a long career in this business just having a few colds and you know, mm-hmm. maybe a minor surgery on your hand or something exactly. like that. But that's just not possible mm-hmm. that everybody is going to have these kinds of things. They're going to show up in different ways or whatever. Do you think the supervision, the idea, it sounds like that idea has caught on that this is now something we can't assume that one or two people are going to have this issue. We have to assume that everybody mm-hmm. is going to have to deal with this probably at some point. 
Absolutely, 100%. And, and speaking for Salt Lake City Fire Department, we are very fortunate to have an administration from the top of our department all the way down that has a lot of buy-in into mental health. Uh, a recent study that was done among firefighters in the whole state, uh, with Salt Lake City included, showed a, a positive trend everywhere that things are getting better in, in response to kind of what you just asked. But especially in Salt Lake, we're seeing that. And and I think that alone and, and the data that was collected there is a really good thing that our administration is doing to go to these other chiefs, go to these other officers around the state and share this message and say, no, look, it is working. And these are the benefits that come when it comes from the top down. And we have a motto in our fire department that we're fit to respond and fit to retire. That throughout our careers, we're going to see things and do things that are going to challenge us physically and mentally. But the role of, of our peer support, the role of our wellness coordinators is to allow our firefighters have the best possibility to retire in a healthy way that they can continue to enjoy their pension and their lifestyle and everything else. And that's a big thing, too, because we're seeing in terms of suicide and in terms of, of real mental health challenges within the fire service, it's after they retire where they don't have that busyness of work life. They don't mm. have that station and that crew to come to, even if they're not talking about things, but they're at least among peers. At least they're among those friends who they, they have that understanding, that unspoken understanding of these people understand me. Sure. These people have been there. And when they retire, they lose that. And it's not there for them anymore. And we're seeing a lot of retired firefighters struggling with suicide, struggling with depression, struggling with substance abuse. And that's a demographic that, we need to do a better job and we are doing a better job of targeting and making sure that you know they have the resources that they gotcha. need i was thinking just the other day i was you know thinking about this interview and we're talking about issues like you're addressing here in, in salt lake city a very active company and where you're working but i was thinking back to where i grew up volunteer fired mm -hmm. what do they do who do they have you know your little towns across america yep they see things they do things and they aren't and a cohesive, active group. I mean, they are to some degree, but not nearly to the degree that you're in, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And I obviously I can't speak for every volunteer agency, you know, around the country. And kudos to the the men and women who are willing to volunteer and, sure. and are willing to go through that simply for the the sake of their communities. And and obviously they they love the thrill and the drive to that end. But you're right. The, it's missing. It's a missing link. And we're starting to see it more, but it's still, it's not there. I, I started um, on a volunteer ambulance and we worked alongside a fire company and we handled, you know, the medical response and we'd, they'd come with us and vice versa. And still to this day, some of the most significant and challenging traumatic calls that I've been on took place while I was a volunteer on that ambulance. And there was nothing you know, you, you had your crew that you could talk to and, and you had volunteers who'd been around the block who understood, who were really empathetic and were able to drive that conversation of how are you doing? Are you okay? Follow up with you, send you a text, give you a call. Mm -hmm. But as far as, you know, official resources and peer support groups and EAP programs, they're not to that point yet. And I'm sure there are volunteer agencies and smaller agencies that are getting there and are recognizing it because it is kind of trending that direction. But absolutely, you know, these volunteer firefighters and EMS providers, they're kind of on a sh short rope when it comes to mental health support. Yeah. Well, so hopefully anyone who's listening to this or is part of that organization would hear this and think, okay, I'm not alone. Yes, I'm in a small town, but I don't know that my local organization is necessarily equipped to handle that. 
but there are probably resources to reach out to or different ways to think about or realize that this is a very common issue. This isn't just my problem that I have to resolve myself. I can get this, get help somehow because this sort of comes with the job. Even though I'm not getting paid for it, I'm not, you know, uh, as you are, mm. I'm still vulnerable to this kind of stuff. And to think I'm not going to be affected by it in some way is not realistic. Absolutely. Right? And we've had a lot of success in the conversations that I've had, the presentations that I've been able to give in looking at mental health, especially in terms of PTSD and mental health issues related to traumatic experiences, like you have in a career in, in the fire service and an EMS, in terms of the actual anatomy and physiology of the brain itself. You know, we're not looking at it strictly from an emotional aspect. It's not just, you know, sitting or laying on a couch and saying, this is how I feel. It's actually looking at the neuropathways within the brain, that the brain is not this limitless storage, iCloud, if you will, of, of space, but that every time you experience one of these traumatic situations, it comes up through the brainstem, it gets stored in the amygdala, it has to be processed in the limbic system, it has to move to the, the prefrontal cortex in order to process appropriately. But the brain is just like the body in terms of that fight or flight response. It wants to protect itself. It wants to protect itself from that stress and from that trauma. And so what it does is it, it starts to build up blockades for that actual energy to move from the amygdala to that prefrontal cortex. And as it builds up and as it builds up and as it builds up, we start to shut down and we start to become a shell within ourselves and within our own minds because that stress and that trauma has nowhere to go and it's physically running out of space. Using myself as an example, one time we went on a call of a 14-year-old girl who, who committed suicide and the whole situation was not unique in terms of what it was and the outcome, but for some reason, that specific call was the grain of rice that broke the camel's back in my own mind. And I wouldn't even be able to have this conversation and be able to express this much of that story without just breaking down. You know, even the thought of it was, was just too traumatic. And that was, to me, is like, okay, why was it this individual call that affected me. And as I learned more about the actual anatomy and physiology of the brain, it's because my cup was full. It was dealing with every single suicide and things like that, that I had never processed, that I had, my brain had been putting in this space to try and protect itself. Um, and so by going and, and getting therapy and getting counseling for myself and, you know, EMDR and other methods made a world of difference because now all of a sudden it moved that energy from that part of my brain that I was trying to keep it to protect myself to the parts of my brain that could process it appropriately. And that's as we have that conversation with other firefighters and as we highlight it from this perspective of this is just how your brain works. This is how your brain functions. It no longer becomes this shame and this guilt and this, this ego and machos and all that stuff. It's almost like an EMT or a paramedic class. It's like, oh yeah, just like how the cardiovascular system works, just like how the, uh, the GI tract works. This is how the brain works. And it gets a lot of people asking more questions and seeking out information. And then they start to realize in themselves, oh, yeah, I can identify with that. I experienced that. This happened to me. And it's like, okay, great. Go and now do this. Go and speak to someone about it so they can help move that energy from one place to the next in order for it to be processed appropriately. Yeah. All... And with the effort or the idea, I guess, of saying this is something you're likely going to have to deal with through your career and it doesn't have to break you. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I mean, we spend, we spend 16 weeks training our firefighters, rightfully so, on how to fight fire, 
on how to pull hose, how to put engines into pump, defensive tactics, offensive strategies, basement fires, roof fires, uh, how to how to ventilate structures, how to extricate victims, how to self-extricate in an emergency. We teach them every single thing that they could possibly face as best we can for 16 weeks. But yet, we are three and a half times more likely to lose a firefighter in Utah to suicide than we are to line a duty death. And we spend one hour at the end of recruit school teaching our recruits about mental health. And it's not to discredit, you know, the, the practices in the past or any department's practice. But, I mean, that disparity between the amount of time spent training on firefighting and the amount of time spent training on the mental side of, of this job and yet we're three and a half times more likely to lose a firefighter to suicide because of the mental health challenges than we are because of the job-related firefighting skills and, and lack thereof, if you will, is kind of discouraging if you really think about it. And that's where we need to, to step up our game a little bit is to start early on in their careers of showing them this is what you're going to face, but these are some tools to help you deal with it. These are some resources there available to you. And this is how we build up that resiliency so that when you do cross that bridge, you now have a deep well to draw from and you can protect yourself. So there is a, within the profession, this idea we have to spend more time on this. Yeah. Routinely. Absolutely. Not a like once a quarter check the box kind of thing that we've got to spend some mental capital, I guess, talking about this amongst yourselves. Do you see that growing? I mean, is that is there oh, momentum 100%. there for that? Yeah. When I came on the job... We didn't even have an official peer support team. We had a group of individuals who, you know, were willing to give out their phone numbers and whatnot. We didn't have the EAP program like we have now. We didn't have the resources. We have a clinician that works with our fire department and its members now. And so we're seeing a ton of momentum in, in growing that and in growing that education and that training. We do quarterly trainings. We do officer trainings. We, we spend time, like I mentioned, with our new recruits. But there's, there's always room for, for more. You sure. know, there's always room for more growth. You know, you don't build a house with one tool. You know, we need to explore different tools and options and then train on them like we would train on anything else in the fire service because we don't know what it is that's going to trigger something. We don't know what it is that's going to bring about that conversation. But when we do get to that point, we want to be ready and not trying to play catch up. It sounds like you see maybe a shift in momentum of the average person in the company being willing to say, hey, I Somebody help me here. I've got something going on that I think needs to be addressed. I think so. I mean, personally, my experience, it's it, it's not just my effort of, of trying to initiate these conversations, but, you know, hearing other peer support members share their experiences of people reaching out to them. We are seeing that momentum picking up at a rapid pace of, of people addressing things. And the nice thing is it's not significant things. And that, to me, is a, is a sign that we're on the right path. If they're willing to talk about insignificant things or small trauma saying, hey, that call is still kind of bugging me. I went home after that call and I didn't really like it. You got want you want to have a conversation, you want to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so it can be fixed quickly because it's not compounding over time. Um, and I think another big thing is we're saying, and it's it's not to to rag on one generation or the other, but we're seeing a huge shift in the fire service right now of a previous generation, you know, reaching the end of their careers. Um, retiring and enjoying retirement and a younger generation coming in and filling the ranks of officer and filling the ranks of, of, you know, private and, and whatnot. And the, the newer generation that's coming up is more 
willing to have conversations regarding their mental health, is more uh, willing to focus on their overall wellness. Older generations, a lot of time would work side jobs. And so they really weren't getting that recovery in between shifts at the fire station. They'd go home, they'd, you know, build their business, they build their brand, they build, you know, whatever side job, they'd work another firefighting job somewhere. Whereas the younger generation, we're seeing less firefighters use their time for other forms of employment. They're more willing to say, you know what, no, this is my time off. I want to enjoy it. I want to have quality of life over quantity of stuff. And I think there's a real benefit to that because they're they're utilizing that time off. And hopefully it trickles into that older generation as they leave. You know, there's there's still time to improve anybody's life. And we're seeing that older generation saying, you know what, there is some truth to that. Let's enjoy potential retirement. Let's enjoy the end of my career. And we're seeing older generations of firefighters continuing to make new healthy choices in their mental health. Um, in a lot of ways, you only know what you've been shown, right? You grow up in it and you sort of look around and go, okay, this is what it is. And you try to adapt to that. And you don't know these things are coming, I guess, unless the people around are sort of preparing you for that. So it sounds like there's definitely a a shift towards this to say everybody's going to have this kind of thing at one point or another. You're not the defective one if this particular call or what you saw or maybe you it happened a year ago and it wasn't didn't seem like it was a big deal or you know whatever it is that you're no longer the 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 outsider. Absolutely. And going back to that that call that I had we finished that call I knew right away that it was different. I knew right away that there was something about this call that was going to affect me differently. I couldn't even still, I can't really put my finger on it of, as to why, but there was something in the air that night that I just knew this call was different. And even though I was, you know, a new part of the peer support team and mental health was a priority, I didn't say a word. I didn't tell anybody about it. I was ashamed to tell anybody about it. I'm the one that people come to when they're having a mental health challenge or issue or crisis, not me the other way around. And it took me a long time. And I hate to admit that to actually open up and say, you know, no, this call is bugging me. This call is really affecting me. It's affecting my home life and to have that conversation and to open up. But by doing that and by sharing that story as, as maybe uncomfortable, especially when I first started sharing it as it was, it opened doors for other people to have conversations and for other people to open up. And there's, there's value in vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And as firefighters, as individuals, you know, maybe a traumatic call isn't something that's going to affect you, but by being willing to talk about it, even if it just affects you in a minute manner, you might be opening that door to have a conversation of something that is affecting significantly your sister or your brother in the fire service. They'll now trust you and open up to you and you can make a big difference. So I think firefighters who are willing to just have that conversation publicly or privately, whatever it might be, you know, creates that benefit of the vulnerability to where you don't know who you might be helping. You don't know who you might be putting on that path to getting better mentally. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, you know, experienced firsthand for myself. Yeah. So even though you were knowledgeable about all these things, it turns out that you are in fact human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I tell myself I'm not, but I definitely was. <laughs> as it turns out, you're just as vulnerable to all this stuff as anybody. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. It was a hard lesson to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with what you're saying there. It's the conversation. The more people that join in on it, I think it does help other people around who are probably thinking the thing and, and aren't, and they're afraid to say something. Yeah, I agree. The synergy of that. I guess I keep going back to the volunteer fire department. 
you're not around each other all the time. It's probably hard to reach out in moments. You're in a small town, you're, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so somehow, I guess, building up that support would seem a little bit more difficult, but certainly not impossible, right? I mean, these ideas have got to be filtering down to those organizations. I think organizations. so. I mean, the resources are there and available and the message is being shared. It's it's overcoming the stigmas and the, the culture, if you will. And, you know, you, you mentioned synergy and being around each other. And, and that's absolutely, that's a huge part of it because there's, there's strength in those bonds. We bond with one another over trauma. We bond with one another over these experiences. But then when we refuse to communicate, we aren't benefiting from that bonding. I read a, a study that was conducted. I can't remember what year and, and to give the details. And, and I apologize if I'm misquoting it. But Navy SEALs, when they train, they go into the ocean and they make them lock arms. And the waves crash over them and it's cold and they're tired and it's miserable. It's horrible. It's a horrible experience for them, but it's important. And then... They wanted to test or to try to see if if that linking of the arms made a difference, if that really changed anything to have that even physical bonding contact with fellow recruit or trainee. And so for a couple of the classes, they didn't have them link arms. They just laid next to each other, not touching, not making that physical contact. Same experience, same waves, same temperature of the ocean, same amount of tiredness, same evolutions and drills and tests and push-ups and everything else. They lost a disproportionate amount of recruits compared to these other classes in those classes that didn't link arms. By, by removing even the simplest of these bonds, they eliminated an opportunity for them to connect in this trial and to have that resiliency to face the challenges. And so they washed out a lot more of these new SEALs than they did in, in other classes. You know, they still lost members in other classes, obviously, but it was a, a significant amount more in these classes that didn't link arms. Uh, one of the studies that I participated in was 12 individuals who did an event called the Tribute Crucible. Some of them were active firefighters. Some of them were retired. A couple were from back east, New York, where they had a personal experience with 9-11. Others were just civilians participating. And the basis of this crucible was to forge this bond in this absolutely hellish ordeal over 36 hours as a way to respect and commemorate 9-11. And they did the same thing. They were up at, I think it was Pineview Reservoir, where they're linking arms at 2 in the morning, laying in the water. They're bushwhacking off the side of mountains with no trails. They're getting to a clearing, and instead of resting, now they're doing burpees and carrying railroad ties and these team-building exercises. And as I interviewed each of these participants, every single one of them has stated that their mental health is better for having participated in this crucible. Not because, you know, they just had more of a respect and understanding of 9-11, but because of the bonds that it formed with these strangers over just 30-something hours. That every single one of them, when they face mental health challenges since participating in this, and this has been four or five years now, has said, no, I still, my mind, when I'm stressed, goes back to that. And it just gives me this strength of, no, you can do this. You can get through this. Even though they're not having that communication and that link with those other participants, many of them still mention, I know that if I were to run into so-and-so, we would hit it off just like we did on there. And, and even though we haven't seen each other in years, nothing would have changed. And it highlights the power of that bond in building resiliency to trauma. Yeah, and that's a good leadership message, I guess, to enforce to everybody around you. What do you need for the individual out there listening or within the organization? What's missing yet? Or is it really just we think we have what we need at this point? It's just a matter of 
putting it into practice and daily sort of reinforcing yeah. these ideas. You know, I mean, kind of yeah, using a sports analogy that's maybe silly, but, you know, the Mamba mentality. Kobe Bryant's the the best basketball player, one of the best basketball players that's ever lived. Michael Jordan, the best basketball player that's ever lived. They're always practicing. They were always the first to practice. They were always the working the hardest. They were always continuing to refine their skill and their talent and their passion. And, you know, even if we have all of the tools and all of the resources for mental health, which compared to five, ten years ago, we have just a unbelievable amount more than we did then. It's just constantly trying to refine things and constantly trying to redefine, okay, this worked. Why did it work? How can going forward it work even better? And viewing it in that mentality of, okay, let's just keep practicing it. Let's just keep pushing this and building up this resiliency. And I, as I've gone through this for myself, I just I love that word resiliency because that's what we need to have in, in facing trauma. But at the same time, resiliency in terms of, of how it's typically viewed is only half the equation. And I mean, when people describe resiliency, they, they use an example of a ball right? A resilient ball, you'll throw it against the ground and it'll bounce. The ability to bounce back is the ability to be resilient. But if the surface on which that ball is bouncing is not firm, it doesn't matter how resilient that ball is, it won't bounce. And so we don't, we don't necessarily just need to focus on the resiliency of, of bouncing back after a trauma. We need to focus on the proactive approach of creating that firm foundation for which to bounce off of. And that's the element of resiliency that I think we're still lacking and we're getting better at is, is how can we have this more proactive approach? We know firefighters are going to struggle. We know firefighters are going to face trauma. We know firefighters are going to be physiologically changed because of it. So what are the steps that we can take that address it before it gets to them? So by the time that it does come, they're already prepared. They're already doing what needs to be done that it's not having this long-term negative effect. Are there either yourself or organizations, or do you feel like I'm a firefighter somewhere listening to this and, and thinking to myself, gosh, we don't do that well enough, or we need to do better, or we need to learn more about that. Oh, absolutely. Is this sort of a national idea at this point? It's just a matter of getting trained and reaching out yeah. and, and having the enthusiasm, I guess, to say, you know what, I got to spend time in this because this is going to help. It could help me. It could help the station. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, we need to put some time and effort into this. I mean, is, is the stuff out there? Is it just a matter of, hey, in convincing people to, you know, make this a priority, you will, you will get the dividends? Yeah, the, the resources are there. The, you know, for professional firefighters, the International Association of Firefighting, which is our, our international union, and all of the local unions play a big role in building up peer support teams and building peer support programs. We have two resource centers now through the IFF for substance abuse, that are both outpatient and inpatient. We have through our insurance agencies within Utah, so many more resources for uh, anxiety, depression, mental health, suicide ideations, and any kind of addiction as, as a result of those things. And so those resources are there and they continuing to grow. It really is just boots on the ground of pounding that message as far and wide as we can, you know, doing things like this podcast or presenting to new firefighters or sharing, you know, at symposiums, Unified Fire Authority here in, in the Salt Lake Valley, they do a great job of hosting events. In fact, they're hosting one um, was today and tomorrow on suicide prevention. Uh, Salt Lake City in partnership with Salt Lake City Police Department 
had a professional come in and talk about mental health challenges a few months ago. And we're seeing a lot more buy-in from the people who need to be bought in in order for there to be success, which yeah. is good. Seeing this as good for the overall organization, yeah, like you said, not just the technical skills of doing the job, but this is sort of part of, mm -hmm. needs to be baked into the profession to make sure that everyone does come to work as their best self. Absolutely. And it, it takes resources. You know, classes cost money and bringing in teachers and professionals cost money. And But the money spent on prevention, especially mental health prevention, pays dividends. And it's been proven in numerous studies, both in, in the private and public sector, that by investing in mental health of, of your members, you're going to be saving double, triple that amount in time off work and injury prevention. Because when someone is mentally not at the top of their game, they're also physically not at the top of their game. And if they're physically not at the top of their game and now you're sending them on a fire or a big lift assist or an intense medical or a big car accident, now they're more prone to injury, to physical injury. And now they're going to be off work and miss their shift and you're going to have to bring someone back to cover them. So even just from that financial perspective, investing in mental health pays massive dividends. Would you say that's really where it, what it comes down to is just having everybody sort of buy in to this is important. We, we can do this. This is not rocket science here. We, we know what to do. Yeah. We just need to make it a priority and it will pay for itself essentially. It will. You know, the, the numbers, the, the studies, the, the data, the, the number of people who are benefiting from it, I mean, is just undeniable. The, the hard part, especially in this position, is as much effort, you know, I individually, as much effort as I feel I'm putting into it, every time I hear about a suicide in the fire service, it's just, it's, it's demoralizing because it's like, what did we miss? Right. Yeah. You know, the what system didn't work for that person. Yeah. And, and unfortunately it's, it's so difficult and it's not to, to lay blame at anybody, but you know, that what did we miss? And, and unfortunately, you know, the, the fact of the matter is and the, and the reality of it is, is there's always going to be those cases that we, we probably didn't miss anything, that it did come as a surprise, that there weren't any of those red flags or warning signs. Um, and that we were being vigilant in looking for them and, and trying to get people help. And, and suicide is, is, is always going to be there. But, but let's take the, the perspective then, if you will, of, of not necessarily eradicating it and saying we're only successful if we completely eradicate it, but let's just minimize it. Let's just continue to decrease it and decrease it. And if we're constantly decreasing, eventually we're going to get to that zero. Eventually we're going to get to that, that number that we're after. But, you know, having that mentality of, of saying, you know, oh, we still had a suicide, so this must not be working is something we need to, to make sure that we're avoiding because it is working even if, you know, someone meets that unfortunate end and we just need to keep working, you know, ever harder to prevent it from happening again. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's great. I mean, this is a good conversation. I learned a few things, honestly. Just thinking about it in different ways was good for me. Obviously, we're hoping the person out there listening gets something from this. Any last things you would say? Uh, what would you leave listeners with or maybe a question I haven't asked that I should have? You know, I think any anyone listening, you are more like your fellow firefighter than, than you are unique in terms of your mental health, in terms of what you're struggling with, so, whether it's substance abuse, suicidal ideations, anxiety, stress, depression. You are not alone. You are surrounded by firefighters who are facing the same challenges that you are, and help is available from anyone around you. I mean, that's the that is the best part of this job is the sisterhood and brotherhood of its members. 
I could name three dozen firefighters off the top of my head that if I needed something, I could call them up right now and they would drop everything and come running. And I could name twice that of, of individuals that I would do the same for them. So don't ever feel like you're on an island or that you're isolated. You are not alone in how you're feeling. You're not alone in what you're struggling with. And even just having that conversation is going to make a world of difference. Right. I can tell this means a lot to you. I like the way you said that is you're more like the people around you. Don't think that you're different because you've got this or that thing or, or perceive that they don't. Yeah. Well, they haven't said anything to me, so they must not have this issue either. Well, we're all sort of facing this in some form or fashion. So it's a very good message. I appreciate yeah. talking to you. I think this has been a very useful conversation. Hopefully there's folks out there that get something out of this, or at least if you're in the fire department service and are thinking about ways you can help or what you could this be a benefit to you? I hope you can take something away from this show. I guess that closes down this particular show of Counselors Can Help. Please go to counselorscanhelp.com and see what other resources we have, and there'll be more like this shows in the future. And we'll talk to you again on Counselors Can Help. Our mission is to spread the word that counselors can help. We want to teach you how to get started and get the most out of therapy. We encourage you to reach out to a professional in your area to help yourself or a loved one. Thank you to Kelsey Fink, our production assistant and chief of technology and social media. Thanks to Aspire Counseling at AspireUT.com for their support. If you want to know more about how counselors can help, go to counselorscanhelp.com. We have lots of resources, information, and we update it all the time. We'll see you next time on Counselors Can Help, a production of Merge Publishing.